It was the most unlikely day for attack, which is probably why the Arab nations chose it. They chose October 6, 1973. That was the Jewish Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the holiest day on Israel's calendar. It was also during Ramadan, the holy month in Islam. So there is no reason in the world the nation of Israel should expect any military strike against them. In the 25 years since Israel became a formal state in 1948, there were a few seasons of armed conflict just to maintain their existence. Israel had survived the Suez Crisis, the Six-Day War, and then was also known commonly as the War of Attrition. Defending herself against her enemies had become regrettably familiar, but nobody expected a strike on that October morning in 1973. But ready or not, here it came. Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, all of them descended on Israel in the early morning hours. Those enemy armies were even supplemented by forces from Fidel Castro's Cuba. What in the world were they all after? They were targeting the Sinai Peninsula in the south near Egypt and the Golan Heights in the north near Syria. Collectively, these attacking armies outnumbered the Israeli Defense Force by three to one, and the enemy armies were armed with the latest in Soviet military technology. They had twice the tanks, twice the artillery. This outcome was a foregone conclusion. Israel would lose. The rest of the world watched, knowing Israel would lose. But God had other plans. Because Israel, they are his special people. The IDF launched counterattacks, and just seven days later, even though they were outnumbered, outmanned, outmatched, outgunned, they pushed the enemy forces in the north back far enough the Israelis were lobbing artillery shells into the Syrian capital of Damascus. And by the time the UN brokered a ceasefire on October 25th, just 19 days after the surprise attack, the IDF was within approximately 60 miles of Egypt's capital of Cairo. Many people consider this to be one of the top five most surprising military victories in all of human history. There's no question God has intervened on behalf of his people in that 1973 conflict, and that should come as no surprise. Every child of God who has lived for God for any significant length of time, we have seen him do the same. His power, his spirit that lives within us has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat time and time again. Just when the situation looks hopeless, here comes victory, all because of the Spirit of God. Born-again believers, we have a resident, powerful source of victory that produces miracles much more spectacular than the Yom Kippur War. We are able to triumph over flesh, over sin, and death only by the power, by the might of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to hear more about that right after this. Welcome to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. Brought to you by Word of Flame Curriculum and the Pentecostal Publishing House. This podcast encourages adult disciples to think deeply about God's Word, further develop their personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and make a greater commitment to the purpose and plan of God for their lives. Let's dive into today's lesson and explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. Happy New Year to you, God's Word for Life listeners. You're listening to L.J. Harry, and you are listening to the God's Word for Life companion podcast. The first episode of this brand new year still has that brand new year smell to it. Is the final episode in our series, The Work of the Spirit. It's entitled Victory Through the Spirit, and it stems from Romans chapter 8, verse 6, where Paul wrote, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
We're held hostage by our flesh, by our selfish instinct. The Bible calls that our carnality or just our selfishness. And the truth of that shocking statement is self-evident, even with a cursory look into our lives. Our spiritual nature is brought to life by new birth, but it exists in a vehicle of temporal existence which consistently moves away from obedience to God. It's not just that our flesh struggles to please God. It cannot please God. Just two verses after the one I just read. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Even after we have been born again and we receive the Spirit of God, our flesh is still not able to be in harmony with our spirit. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and they're contrary the one to the other. So you cannot do the things that you would. If I could put it into my own words here in Ohio, it's kind of like the flesh is Michigan and the spirit is Ohio State. They just can't get along ever. This condition seems absolutely dire, and I think I just lost every Michigan listener. <laughs> so long. The carnal mind cannot be subject to God. The flesh is completely contrary to the spirit, constantly warring against the spirit. And yet we live in the flesh. We are flesh and blood. So how can we live for God? How can we succeed? I'm glad you asked that. That answer is found in the next verse in Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, thank God, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. When we have been born again by spirit baptism, we have power to live a new life. Our old nature, this flesh, this carnality dies in repentance, is buried in baptism, and we rise to enjoy living a new life. Nothing else empowers us to overcome the flesh except the spirit of God. We can't rely on willpower or even New Year's resolutions. We can't rely just on good ideas or self-help books. We mortify the flesh. We live after the Spirit only when we submit to God's influence and leadership in our lives. Apart from that, we will consistently overcome our best intentions and our flesh will rule our lives. We must have the Spirit of God. First question, why do you believe it is so difficult to overcome this flesh? Well, Jesus is the perfect example of this principle. He warned his disciples he was about to be executed Matthew 16, verse 21 reads, From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. It's reasonable that his flesh would recoil from those terrors he was soon to face. Think about it. The scourge, the thorns, the nails the cross, they all fired on him. They all inflicted agony on him, just as they would any other human. He was not exempt from the pain, not exempt from the fear of the cross. His flesh passionately desired to be delivered from the cross. If Jesus had chosen to yield to his flesh and reject the will of God, we could never be redeemed. And it's amazing that we get to see this unfold. We get to see the very moment, the seminal moment, when submission to the Spirit of God wins over the flesh. The Gospels record Jesus' nighttime journey to an olive grove known as Gethsemane. And there in that very quiet place, Jesus waged war between flesh and spirit. Luke wrote it like this, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, 
Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Let me ask you this question. Can you think of a time you prayed this prayer of Jesus regarding your will and his? The final words of Luke 22, verse 42, give us the answer for our daily struggle with the flesh. It's very simple. It's very short. But it's harder to live than it is to say, not my will, but thine be done. That prayer is the key. That prayer is what won Jesus the victory. We can live a life of victory over the flesh only by the power of the Spirit, but we must consciously and soberly choose to follow the will of God, not our own. The will of God is not only concerned with major life choices that come along every couple of years, what house, Certainly what spouse, what car, what job, what church, what career, what ministry, what city. But God's will is invested in the hundreds, even thousands of small choices we make every day that affect our spiritual direction. Maybe you remember a few years ago when WWJD was such a growing trend. People were asking all the time. They were wearing it on bracelets. They were wearing it on church. There were bumper stickers with WWJD all over it. And it stood for what would Jesus do? That focus is great, but it might not be the best question. Maybe we should ask ourselves this, WWJHMD. Not what would Jesus do, but what would Jesus have me do? Now, the answer to that question should guide our decisions. It's harder to say it, not as quite as catchy and short and pithy, but it certainly would help. WWJHMD, what would Jesus have me do? The spiritual battle is fierce. The enemy of our souls does not play by a set of rules. He is not fair. He does not care. He is relentless. He is ruthless. He will not play fair. And he will not rest day or night until he has destroyed every one of us, which is why we need the power of the Spirit. There's no Geneva Convention that governs the conduct of the warriors in this war. We must take this Seriously, it's life and death, but it's more than that. It's heaven and hell. This is eternal. We shouldn't cross over the threshold to new life through the salvation message with any false expectation that there's only tranquility on the other side. Just a bed of roses, no thorns. No, my friend, we are in a war. Paul said in Romans 7, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. From the first moment you breathe your first breath as a newborn, born-again Christian, conflict rages in us and around us, living full of the Holy Spirit, living under His direction and under His Lordship. It's key to experiencing ongoing victory as we live this life. Every foe, whether demonic or fleshly, must bow to the power of the Spirit. In myself, I'm destined to be conquered. I don't stand a chance, but in the power of the Spirit, we win. If we, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, we live, we win. Romans 8, verse 13. And Paul dealt with what we deal with. He expressed his solidarity with every Christian of all ages. He identified with our common struggle. The things we know we should do seem to be a struggle to actually do them. Things we should not do. Boy, those are easy to do, aren't they? Paul expressed it like this, for the will is present with me. But how to perform that which I is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. And then he goes on to this tongue twister at the end of Romans chapter 7. Take a look at the enemy's playbook. 
He tempts a believer to sin. Believer gives in to temptation. And Satan condemns the believer and tells them there's no hope for them. Declares that believer who fell guilty, dirty, worthless, hoping for punishment against the very believer for the very action Satan suggested. As children of God, if we embrace these lies quickly, we're going to feel isolated from God. All he longs for is repentance so he can forgive us and restore us. Don't fall for the trick of the devil. Because as soon as he tempts you and gets you to sin, he will not pat you on the back. He will pound you into the ground and tell you, God could not love you. Look what you've done. But if you will hear the voice of the Spirit, you will hear him say, if you will repent, I will forgive. Here's a question. And this is one we really need to consider. What is the difference between conviction and condemnation? There is a huge difference. They both feel a little bit alike, but there's a huge difference in the result. One of them drives us to God. That's conviction. And one of them drives us from God. That's condemnation. This inclination towards sin is in our flesh. And that condemnation it produces, those are not weak foes. They're not only overcome by our willpower or our resolution. They're only overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, but they can be overcome. The testimony of the scriptures declare it. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Paul said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. With a mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Jesus delivers us from the death waiting in our flesh when we disobey the word of God. God's spirit gives us victory over the practice, over the power, over the penalty of sin. And in Romans 8 opens beautifully with there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. When we walk after the spirit, condemnation is not our home. God's Spirit leads us to repentance, and repentance leads us to communion with God again. God convicts us of our sin so we can repent. But we're not judged worthless or dirty when we repent. John wrote, if we confess our sins, God is faithful, and he is just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. 1 John 1 verse 9. In many ways, the way we live our lives is a choice. We can accept the devil's lies and live in bondage to sin and condemnation that comes from it, or, behind door number dos, we can believe the word of God and live in victory over sin with the freedom that comes from obedience. The devil will lie, but God will call, and we must decide which voice we will hear. Victory is not something we must win. Victory is a reality of our spiritual inheritance. The Apostle Paul triumphantly wrote, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8 verse 37. Victory is part of our kingdom identity. It's woven into our spiritual DNA. It is who we are. It's not just something we do. We overcome as we stay submitted to the Spirit of God. And at times we will feel weak. We will fall. We will stumble. We might feel condemned or even defeated, but in Jesus Christ, we are strong, we are free, we are victorious. What we feel does not dictate what is real and what is true. A noted political commentator often said this, facts don't care about your feelings, and that is the truth. Our life in the Spirit is not just a Sunday-to-Sunday encounter with God. It's a moment-by-moment walk 
with him. Walking speaks of daily connecting with Jesus Christ by his spirit. For every person who doesn't have some kind of impairment that prevents it, walking is second nature. Unless you're dealing with mobility issues and you're in a wheelchair or on crutches or with a walker or with a cane even. Walking, you don't even think about walking. If somebody said, hey, let's go, we're going to go to Raising Canes, you're going to get up and walk back away from your desk and go to the car. Walking is natural. Nobody marvels. Nobody cheers when we walk. Walking is just normal. It should be that way for a Christian. There's no fanfare or expectation. It will be recognized for our walk. We just walk with Jesus. We yield to the leading of his spirit as we walk from here to heaven with a consistent, patient walk in Jesus Christ. What is your definition of walking in the Spirit? How should walking with Him affect the way we live our lives? Living such a life, it doesn't only guarantee safe passage to heaven, it provides rich blessings and benefits along the way. The world through which we walk is confusing and it's chaotic. An ever-growing percentage of the population depends on drugs, pharmaceuticals, to find calmness and stillness. There, there are cases, absolutely, where they're medically necessary, but many other people are unknowingly trying to remedy a spiritual void with a chemical answer, and it will not work. God has offered a better way. When the Holy Spirit is the guiding force in our thinking, the result in that is life and peace. Victory over depression, victory over discouragement, even over anxiety is available to us through the baptism of the Spirit. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Romans 14, verse 17. Let me tell you just a quick story about my own life. My family and I are in a a transition right now. We are preparing to move to the St. Louis area. I've accepted the job as director of curriculum for Pentecostal Resources Group. And so my part of that will be this God's Word for Life podcast, which I'm excited to get to continue to do. But there's so much uncertainty in this decision. I serve as pastor, or before yesterday, I served as pastor of Apostolic Church here in my hometown, home church here in Mount Vernon, Ohio, and I love the people and I love the city. And it was a difficult decision to make, but I surrendered my will to God's will. And since I made that decision and prayed that prayer, I have had nothing but peace. I know I'm in the will of God, although there are so many question marks and uncertainties. And yet I know I and the church are in the will of God. There is something that comes from peace, that comes from knowing you are in the will of God. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. On the cool evening in the spring of 1909, two heavyweight boxers entered the ring in Paris, France. They were fighting for the World Heavyweight Championship. On one side stood Joe Jeanette at 185 pounds. Across from him was Sam McVeigh at 205 pounds. So Sam's got 20 pounds on Jeanette. The championship was on the line, but so was a purse of $6,000, which would be about $175,000 today. That's a lot of money. They could buy a lot of Raising Cane's. Those events in that era, they were often billed as a fight to the finish. In other words, they weren't 10 or 15 round affairs. There was no judge's decision. If both men were still standing at the predefined end of the match, they were going to continue it until one of them could not go on. And on that night in Paris, the fight proved to be the contest of wills and stamina. Ultimately, spoiler alert, Jeanette won the fight. 
McVeigh refused to come out from his corner in the 49th round. The length of the match was unbelievable, but the physical stamina required to endure it was even more so. The fans were amazed at the outcome because Jeanette had been knocked down 27 times prior to winning that victory. Interestingly enough, every one of us is in the ring. We're in a conflict. It's a spiritual one, not physical, so don't worry about the gloves. But the parameters are the same. The one who endures to the end, he, she, will be the one saved, will be the one crowned. And we will be knocked down. The scripture says a righteous man falls seven times but gets back up. Life and hell will bring their blows. But if we continue fighting, if we continue getting up after we've knocked down, the outcome is already determined. We win. Jeanette had only his willpower to rely on to rise every time he was leveled. But we have more than that. We have the strength of the Lord God Almighty to help us back to our feet again. God's Spirit will enable us to continue far beyond where our own power can carry us. Look around your local church. You'll see scores of people whose lives have been fiercely and mercilessly battered, but they still, they still stand. They still come and they still populate the pews and they still come and sit in those chairs and they still come and stand and lift their hands in worship simply because they get back up after they fall. You can make it. Keep walking with Jesus. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. You will win. Just keep getting back up. And be able to say, as Micah said, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy, for when I fall, I shall arise. I would like us to pray for God to help us to commit our lives to Him, to walk daily with Him, and then also to give us the power we need every day to overcome temptation, both in the flesh and the enemy of our soul. God, I want to walk with you. As the songwriter wrote, please let me walk with you, Jesus. Don't ever leave me alone. I pray help every one of us to walk with you daily. Every one of us to have a covenant relationship with you daily. Every one of us to know you and live for you and love you and walk with you daily. I pray, Lord Jesus, help us to overcome temptation by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to live a life above temptation, a life above the the issues and the attacks in this world. Help us to live through the Spirit. Give us victory, I pray, every day. And on that great and glorious day, give us victory. I pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, thank you so much, God's Word for Life listeners. Great way to start your new year on this podcast. Subscribe and share, and you or your friends, and your friends, I should say, will continue to walk through this God's Word for Life series. Our very next series starts next week, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week. But in the meantime, head over to PentecostalPublishing.com. We've got some fantastic resources. If you're looking for some things to read, things to listen to in this new year to build up your devotion, your discipleship, your walk with Jesus, head to PentecostalPublishing.com. You'll find it all there. Next week, I want to share with you a devotion called The Twelve Spies, and it's a brand new series called Victory Through Faith. It kind of continues what we just learned in this last series about victory through the Spirit. This is Victory Through Faith, and I'm looking forward to sharing that with you next week, and always look forward to learning and living out God's Word for Life. Thank you for listening to God's Word for Life Lesson Companion Podcast. 
where together we explore what it means to live out God's Word in our lives. If you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you are looking for other Bible study tools and resources to encourage you in your walk with God, visit us today at PentecostalPublishing.com.